You're listening to Texas Slim's Vision, where we discuss food intelligence, the Texas Beef Initiative, and how to design an international lifestyle starting right here, right now. You don't want to miss this. And now, here's your host, Texas Slim. Hey guys, this is Texas Slim with the Texas Slim's Vision. I'm here with a, a local friend, a local producer, uh, a guy from, he grew up in my small town and I grew up in his small town. He's been in the agricultural business his whole life. It's in his blood, it's in his family. His name is Justin Trammell, Trammell. And um, Justin Trammell is actually setting some new standards as far as localized beef production and animal protein production in the state of Texas. I wanted to have him on tonight and start uh, giving our listeners, giving me additional education and talk about the Texas Beef Initiative, what I'm doing, but more importantly, what he's doing, uh, boots on the ground, what type of regulations he's having to deal with in the state of Texas and how he is actually about to create his own processing plan, his own producing animal protein uh, business. And so, hey, Justin, how are you doing today? Oh, not too bad. I'm glad to be here. So, yeah, it's been a while. Um, you know, I think I started talking to you back in September, probably. And yep. uh, I walked up to to the farmer's market there in the, in the county square and uh, we started talking and we've had a lot of conversations. I bought a lot of beef from you and everything. And, you know, whenever I came back from Austin and here to the Texas Panhandle, I wanted to find somebody just like you. And I think you were the second person I talked to <laughs> that, uh, in, you know, sure. We, we struck up a conversations and we met for at a at a brew pub and then we we sat down and talked for about two or three hours hours and um you know i was i was kind of framing the texas beef initiative i wanted to get a lot of education out there i wanted people to understand that they don't have to basically anymore don't have to settle for um basically um less than quality beef or animal protein at the stores and that you know what you're doing is going to be needed for the future of our pure protein supply for our kids uh for our communities and the more i talked to you basically i was became amazed at the the level of education you have in the agricultural world the ranching world um the the connections that you have formed in your life and the kind of the passion that you have uh just saying all that so people can start understanding why don't you tell us a little bit about where you come from you know where your family comes from and kind of what led you to where we are right now yeah, you bet. Well, so I, I grew up in Canyon, as you said, you know, I went to the high school there and, and of course, you know, Amarillo is not that far away. So I was able to, as you've said before, kind of get a little bit of that bigger town uh, kind of lifestyle, but still a very small town yeah. uh, feel to it for sure. So I grew up, um, my dad always, from the time that I was born, he worked in agriculture. Um, he mainly did a lot of feed yard uh, pen writing, but he also, you know, worked cattle for other people. He took care of wheat pasture cattle. Uh, he always had a few cattle of his own. And so I grew up doing that kind of lifestyle, you know, learning how to ride a horse and how to doctor cattle and how, and what to look for whenever you're talking about, you know, some grazing and, and the different, uh, ways that you can do that. 
And I also, so that, you know, I grew up doing that my entire life and on both sides of my family, both my mom and my dad's side, agriculture is a deep, deep seated thing. You know, my granddad on my dad, my dad's dad, he, uh, worked the, the Emerald livestock auction from the time he was 16. I remember so, you telling me about that. Yeah. yeah. And that it, tell, say a little bit about that. A lot of people don't understand how big that thing is and the history behind the Emerald livestock. So yeah. And that, that's what I was about to say is it used to be huge. So they used to, it actually sits in Amarillo. It sits in between two uh, railroad tracks, North and South. And they used to get in rail cars with tons and tons of cattle on them. So they would run, you know, they'd sell thousands ahead a week through that uh, livestock auction. Right. And so those animals, you know, whenever they came in, they had to be sorted into like groups so that they would sell better. And that's generally, that's what my granddad did. That's what he was in charge of. And he did a very good job of it. And, uh, but he didn't, like I said, he did that since he, at the time he was 16 and he just retired from doing that, I think two years ago and he's, uh, 80 now. So really, wow. Yeah, so he, he, yeah, that's amazing. And he, and he still does, he still takes care of cattle to this day. It's just not a full-time gig anymore. Like it was. So, right. No, he'll, he'll never stop. I mean, he's, he's <laughs> no, so whenever he's in the ground, he'll stop. That's about go. it. So <laughs> yep, yep. But, uh, he'll keep on doing it with all the stories that his family talks about. That's for uh -huh. sure. So, yep. so, uh, yeah. Okay. So we, we got over that. Keep continue. I'm sorry. I just, Emerald oh. livestock action auction is just a, it's a, it's a magical place. It was a magical place. It has a deep seated history in the city itself. Yeah, it used to be quite the thing for sure. Sure. So, and then on my mom's side, so I actually, I got, I actually know all of my great aunts and uncles on my mom's side. And uh, they all came from a little farm in northwestern Missouri. And so my great grandfather farmed up there and he had a real family farm. So I grew up going up there in the summers to that farm. And of course, at that time, you know, there wasn't really much of anything left, but right you know, my great, my great grandmother still lived up there. And so I got to hear these stories about the family farm and uh, stories from my grandma and her sisters about, you know, raising the animals and, and how people would come together to process the animals and, you know, the different trials and tribulations they went through, you know, with the great depression and, and everything else. And, and how my granddad kind of evolved or my great granddad kind of evolved in that, you know, uh, homestead you know real family farm kind of lifestyle right and, and the, the the different things he did to you know get by because they had hogs they had poultry they had cattle they did row crops so it was a very diversified a very different looking operation than a lot of operations now for sure yeah it's, it's you can't even compare anymore <laughs> <laughs> no no not at all so <laughs> Um, as, as far as saying that, you know, it, it, it would be easy for you and I to kind of get ahead of everybody on this thing. So I want to come back to that. I want to come back to where, you know, how my grandfather lived and how your grandparents also and how what they what they went through and what they did to survive, uh, what what their lifestyles were like. You know, how did they how did how they pioneered a way of life out of basically husbandry of animals? Animals, how they were basically hacking their way through just doing it the way that we've done it for hundreds of years in this country. So let's, let's remember to come back there, but I'll let you continue as well. 
Right. And so that, you know, my ancestor, my great granddad on that side that farm there, we can trace our ancestors on that side all the way back to Wales and oh, wow. to specific, actually a specific grain uh, mill and specific headstones. So even I even know that the, you know, my ancestors that came from Wales were in the agricultural you know, well. so that, that on that side, it's sure deep. There's, there's no doubt about that. Wow. You, you had no choice. <laughs> no. And then whenever, whenever they came over from Wales, they actually came over as indentured servants. Did they doing agriculture? Yep. So that's how they got here. Really? So they had a noble, they were, they were living the feudalistic life. Uh, yep. Yeah. Know. And the, actually the only reason that he was, that my ancestor was able to get out of it is he married the daughter of basically the owner of the contract that was pregnant out of wedlock. Oh, wow. And so <laughs> he did, you know, because back then that was such a taboo thing. And so that was, that was a way out. Really? That's interesting. Uh, we're we're going to come back to that one. <laughs> Do you know the time frame of that? Uh, not well enough. I, I just, I, I know it, you know, from listening to my grandma and, sure. and that kind of thing. But I, I, I'd really, at some point, I need to sit down with both her and my my granddad on my dad's side and actually get a kind good oral history. Yeah. Because yeah. there's a lot of things that I've been told, but you know how it is whenever stories sure. are just getting told, you know, whenever you're sitting well, around. You know, we are Texans. We, we do tall. We, just, we, can tell, we, we can tell a tall tale. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's go on. So, you know, that, and, and like I said, that's deep on that side. And uh, my dad's dad, like I said, he worked all the cattle and actually he came from Oklahoma, a homestead in Oklahoma where they were a very much a family farm. They grew cotton and then they handpicked cotton, all their own cotton. Yeah. And and my granddad has a story about him wrecking a wagon trying to get the cotton to town and the wagon turned over and you know it was a whole big fiasco and the horses ran off and and so he but he remembered hand picking cotton and you know growing these other crops and 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 that's actually what drove him to be more of a cowboy is he hated oh doing cotton. the cotton. Yeah. People don't understand, man. You uh, cut your fingers up on that cotton. You know, that's, uh-huh. it, it, I, I'm, that that'll wear a pair of hands out really fast. Yeah. Hand picking cotton. That's that's just not something that that, uh, you know, people really have any idea about now. No, so. no, they, they don't have a clue. I mean, I did it as a child, you know, on my grandfather's farm. Just we didn't have to. We hoed cotton because, you know, he wasn't using pesticides mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But, you know, we would pick cotton just for fun and stuff like that. But to get that cotton out of that, it, it it's yeah, people don't realize yeah. <laughs> they, they yeah. have no clue. <laughs> Pretty intense. Yeah. And so, like, I mean, like, like I said, it really agriculture is just super deep on both sides. And so I grew up hearing all these stories about the family farm mm-hmm. and the benefits they had with the family farm getting to actually be there around their children whenever their children were growing up you know having being able to have that really valuable family time that i grew up with that i was very blessed to grow up with with my great aunts and right. you know my other relatives that i got to sit around like i said and talk to and listen to and learn from and uh, i really you know i'm i just i value that immensely but i grew up hearing all that and i thought man that's what i want to do However, as I got a little bit older, both directly and indirectly, I was told that, well, the family farm doesn't work anymore. That's not a viable thing. You're, you would leave, lead your, your family into starvation, and it's just not something that can work anymore. Wow. 
did when they told you that did they tell you why were they giving you upfront reasons did they even know why it was going to fail and so why it, it was failing it was all based on the go big or go home kind of thing sure and that as, there were no more markets you know there used to be a local market every city or at least every county seat right where you could take grown you know stuff that you grow your your produce or your animal proteins or wherever and you could actually sell it there and you know get that and anymore you know those markets were just gone they didn't exist anymore right and so you know it was a combination of that go big or go home and the fact that all that infrastructure didn't exist right anymore right and so i kind of i kind of put that dream aside. I said, well, you know, that that's, that'd be something I'd love to do, but I guess that's just not going to work. So I went to college at WT actually there in Canyon. Yeah. And uh, I got a degree in wildlife biology. And while I was doing that, I actually uh, got involved with an organization called the Ogallala Commons. Right. And, and they're all about restoring our small town plains communities. They, they operate mainly over any of the States that have the Ogallala aquifer underneath it. Right. And they look at these small town communities and they try to revitalize them mainly through entrepreneurship, but also looking at the 12 key assets about what. So they've, they've mapped out 12 key assets that make a community. Mm-hmm. And so whenever you put a community and you and you write those assets out, you can kind of see where it's weak and you can start strategically attacking and and trying to revitalize those kinds of things. Um, yeah, I, I I looked them up after you sent them to me. It's mm-hmm. a fascinating organization. I mean, it's the stuff they're doing is really cool. We're going to talk about a, them a lot as you and I have these conversations because mm-hmm. uh, I want everybody to know what they're doing. Because where you know in my space, like on Twitter and everything, that conversation comes up a lot. How do we revitalize these small communities, these small towns? And that's what I'm trying to bring into the conversation. So, you know, I was really excited whenever you brought those up and you sent me that link to them. <clears throat> and it's called the Ogallala Commons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And so I, I got involved with them in college and actually through just a, they, at one point they did like a yearly conference and that, that year had happened to, they were focusing on the aquifer water and what was happening with their aquifers, which I was already aware of, you know, growing up here. Sure. Um, you know, the fact that it, anymore, it takes more and more and more wells to run a single pivot and the return right. is just less and less, very much diminishing returns. So I thought, oh, that'd be, you know, that'd be a really cool conference to go to. So I went to it and uh, then I met Daryl Birkenfeld, the director of that right. organization. And he's an amazing guy. He, he really is passionate about these small communities and just doing everything that he can to make these things work because as I kind of experienced and you might've even experienced it in your small communities, most of the time people would tell you grow up and get an education and go do something with it. Yes. That's but they never would heard. invite you back. No. <laughs> and so that's, that's really what the Ogallala Commons focuses on is they want to invite people back. Right. Cause we have tons of wonderful people with these wonderful skill sets, but a lot of times they've never just been invited back. You found your way back to your, your original Almost, community. Yep. Sure did. 
And, uh, you know, it, it, it did take me maybe going out, uh, <laughs> yep. you know, and then coming back because what you do is you found that you find that value that that maybe I always had wanderlust. So I had to go see mm-hmm. the world, you know, and that was really my thing. I loved growing up in Canyon. I mean, I thought it was a cool place. I loved the dirt roads. I loved the agriculture. I loved, you know, everything about it from Paladora Canyon. Just it, it's a cool place to grow up. It's a canyon. It's a small little canyon. Mm-hmm. That's why it's called Canyon. It's part of the Red River Trip system. A lot of people don't understand that either. And so, you know, it, it was a fantastic journey uh, when I left. And now that I'm back, it's, it feels like, I, you know, I love home even more now. Mm-hmm. Yep, for sure. Yeah. And so with the OC, I actually got involved with several other organizations, namely the Corvera Coalition that's based out of Albuquerque. And all they are is this regenerative ag kind of conglomerate and they focus they have these yearly conferences that focus on the southwestern region of the united states and how you can do this kind of more regenerative ag with especially with your animals and in fact regenerative agriculture really doesn't work well without your animal component no it doesn't and and so i got to go to that and it was just an amazing conference because it was all these most of them were not what would be considered large producers right and they basically had home, you know, those homestead or those family farm type situations. And they were making it work. Where was that conference held at? Uh, Albuquerque. Albuquerque. Okay. And that's in people, Albuquerque, you would never think that they would have a regenerative act, (laughs) you know, conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico, you know, that is, you know, part of the the end of the Rockies right there. It's, it's the desert high plains, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not like what people think of a regenerative act. So yeah. Go ahead. And and so, you know, I, I actually it opened my eyes and I thought, man, this thing could actually work. And then with the Ogallala Commons, they also have a, a food component now where they were focusing on food, what are called food deserts, where you have these areas that don't produce any of their own food. Mm-hmm. And all they do is they have to ship it in, which is unfortunately pretty much all your small communities. Right. More. Right. And and so they have a local food initiative and again, they just were an incredible resource and got me turned on to several other producers and different ways that they did things. And so in 2014, um, you know, as as I got, I graduated from college in in 12 and then I, I worked a few jobs here and there, but in 2014, I jumped in and I said, all right, well, I'm going to start raising chickens because that seems like that would be doable. They're small animals, you know, surely I can figure this thing out. And I started Unfortunately, I may, I've made tons and tons and tons and tons of mistakes doing this, <laughs> Right. Um, but I, I started out wanting to do it and I, I kind of ran with more of the production ag model. Yeah. And so I started with, uh, not Cornish rock hens, which are your general production chickens, but a freedom ranger or a red ranger, which is supposed to be a cross that can forage and, and do everything else. And I had just terrible experiences with them because it was a production type animal that needed all these, you know, climate controlled areas and all these specific things. If you, if you fed them too much feed, you know, there were issues. And, and so it just, it was one thing after another. And so through working that, I finally got turned on to more of the heritage breed type animals, right? Because our area, for those people that don't know the high plains, the, you know, Lana Estacado, we have such wide varying temperature extremes, right? such wide weather extremes. And, and any animal that's not tough is not going to make it. Yep. 
just flat out because you know a 60 degree swing for us in a single day is that's that's pretty yeah that's pretty we see it pretty often we probably have we have one this week <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's in it and actually you know we can go from an almost a 90 degree day to all of a sudden you have a blizzard yeah and you know it just so it can swing just wildly and so you have to have really tough animals and these animals that have been bred for production they they are very well bred for these very specific environment that they raised Right. If you get them outside of that environment, they don't have their genetics are so fine tuned that they don't have the toolkit to be able to deal with anything outside of that very specific environment they were designed for. Right. And And your heritage type animals have that genetic diversity. So they have that massive toolkit. Yeah. As far as, you know, you you talk about the production uh, type of chicken type of fowl. You know, their survival aspect is to be high production, you know, mm-hmm. in a controlled environment. And then the heritage is like its survival is to is to survive and yep. to produce basically better protein because it can survive. It has those survival yes. genes in them. So that does supply better protein to our to our systems as well in the long run, because I, you know, I, I, I've got a heritage chicken from you a couple of weeks ago. And it's totally different. It, it is so much better. I mean, and you can tell a difference. Yeah. So, okay. Well, go ahead. The, those, you know, the, my, my chickens, my poultry, they free range completely on my place. And right. so the, the type of muscle that they build is radically different. The texture, the flavor, it is. everything is radically different because they use those muscles. Now it's not quite as tender as what you get from the store, but I don't feel, I feel that there's a very good trade-off whenever you're talking about that. And that's, that's kind of the general rule of thumb for those heritage type animals, those heritage type breeds of poultry and sheep and hogs and everything else is that they're, they are tough. They grow slower because I can't, you know, uh, a Cornish rock, you can have a Cornish rock uh, chicken be ready for butcher in six to eight weeks. Right. My chickens are more like, 16 to 20, maybe 24 weeks. Mm -hmm. But my, I'm also not feeding them tons and tons of feed in that time either. For the most part, they make their living by going out free range and foraging. Right. What they were supposed to do. That's, I mean, that's how they evolved in the first place. (laughs) Yep. Yep. For (laughs) sure. Yeah. And, uh, Go ahead. I'm sorry. So no, you're good. Um, so that I started with them in 2014 and then I very quickly after that, uh, added sheep to my, uh, production model. And I actually got a, a breed called New Mexico Dow sheep uh-huh. and they're descended from some of the sheep, some of the Spanish sheep that were brought over whenever the Spaniards colonized New Mexico right there and had those missions at the Pueblos and everything else. And those sheep actually descended from those because whenever the Pueblo revolts happened, one of the things that they did is they turned out all those animals right. and scattered them. And so then the, those sheep were actually feral in New Mexico, in Eastern New Mexico for, you know, 600 years, five, 600 years. Wow. And so they were able to very much acclimate to our environment to the point now the sheep that I have, you know, I don't ever dock tails. I don't have to shear the sheep. I don't have to give vaccines. I don't have parasite issues. I've never pulled a lamb 
Really? I, I, they're just an incredibly, incredibly hardy breed and extremely well designed for this area. Sure. I've even seen them. So one, with sheep, a lot of times you have to worry about uh, toxic plants on the range. Mm-hmm. And one of our big ones around here is called Silverleaf Nightshade. And that's supposed to kill sheep dead. Really? Well, I've, I've seen my sheep. They, they eat it <laughs> and they just go on. The first time I saw them do that, I was really, you know, stressed out, but now I just, whatever. Just, whatever. <laughs> just have that. Well, let, uh, let's talk about that real quick. Cause that's a good point. And when we talk about regenerative and we talk about, you know, regenerative, you know, farming and ranching, that is, that is part of it right there that you have an animal that is hardy enough to basically acclimate and survive genetically, physically, whatever it is, even emotionally in a lot of ways to their environment. And a lot of people don't bring the emotions of the animals into it as well, but they are at home here. They're at home on the Yano Estacado. They're at home within your system of ranching. And that's what a lot of people don't understand. And you don't have to do anything. You let them be themselves on the land that they basically have gotten used to the last 600 years. Mm-hmm. And, and that's been taken away from all of our agriculture. They've tried to steal that away from us. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And especially if you and uh, start talking about the pigs, right? the hogs, you know, hog production anymore, generally hog production, well, hog and poultry production are done in giant, you know, uh, climate controlled barns right. and those animals basically never see the light of day and they never see, you know, pasture or anything like that. Right. And, uh, I went with a, a breed called Cooney Cooney and they are out of, they're actually kind of came about close to New Zealand on those islands. Mm-hmm. So they're a breed of hogs that had to adapt to basically a grass or a scrub grass type environment that's not really well suited for hogs because most of the time hogs are more found in in environments where you have what's called mast or in other words like acorns and uh, nuts and that kind of thing you you know trees and shrubs that produce some sort of edible uh, item for those hogs and so these hogs did not have that and so they kind of had to adjust and adapt and they again they had the genetic toolkit to be able to do that right and so they actually became more of a grazing hog and they mm-hmm. they were able to adapt to the yano astacado and everything is that do you, where it well where else were they located here in the states do you know or well they they're actually a relatively new uh import really to the united right. states yeah they're uh you know i think in the 80s is maybe the first time sure and don't don't quote me on that i can't i don't remember i, right. I looked it up one time a long time ago sure but uh i still had to work on their genetics however though because for the most part these hogs are kept as pets okay. not as livestock gotcha and so all of the animals that i could get basically had their their genetic toolkit had been kind of reconfigured as pets and right. the thing with pets is pets tend to be pampered pets tend to you know have they they tend to have a very high lifestyle you know think about like if, if you have a dog or a cat generally you spoil that animal sure. which is fine it's a pet yeah but whenever you, that's the case you also they also lose some of those tools that 
allowed them to be a really good range animal before they had that kind of pampering. Right. And so it took me, you know, about two years of getting my hogs and putting them in those, uh, in the situations that they would need to be able to thrive in and selecting individuals that had that, you know, grew up in those environments and showed that they could, you know, survive and thrive. And so now whenever I first got them, I couldn't have the sows couldn't have litters unless you had them in a barn and a heat lamp. And you had to worry about all this other stuff. And uh, pretty much all the other producers that I've talked to, you had to give iron shots and you had to give all these other, you know, medications and vaccines and everything. And as soon as those piglets were born. And so through selecting for those animals that did really well, now my, my sows, they farrow on pasture. They just make a, they make a little hay nest. Generally they have their babies and they do really, really well. Uh, they, you know, I do have some limited cover that they can get into, especially if we're going to get rain Mm -hmm. or something, but the, the, the mother sows that are really, really good animals generally don't even use that. And that's, that's amazing. Even for me to hear here in the panhandle, because you just don't, you don't think about that. You don't, you don't really see it. Uh, And it's something that disproves that, you know, this type of ranching, this type of uh, food producing that you do is possible in so many different climates, so many different regions and so many different environments. And they try to make everybody think that none of this is possible, that it has to be that enclosed environment like you're talking about, that they do have to be pampered all the time. That's the only way we're going to be able to feed the world if we do this mm-hmm. to these animals. And it's just not the case. Yeah. And, you know, with, with being pampered like that, most of the time that includes having antibiotics shoved down them constantly, if not on a daily basis, on a very regular basis. And that's not just not something I have to do now that I've had these, all these animals out here and been able to select for these really strong individuals. That's just not something that I have to worry about. And I don't use because I don't need them, you know? Right. Um, As far as that, Talk about antibiotics a little bit when it, a lot of people don't even realize they eat antibiotics all the time because they, you know, they, they uh, shop at the grocery store and they eat this beef that, or this, you know, pork or this fowl that has antibiotics in it. I don't think people really understand. And I think it'd be responsible for us to kind of explain that to people. You know, what does that do to the animal? What does it do to the, 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 basically the process of raising that animal what does it do to the meat and everything well first of all you know antibiotics are are meant to be a good tool and they can be a good tool if used correctly right and that that means you know they they're designed to take on bacteria that gets out of control and in these big production models generally especially in the hog and the poultry barns they feed what's called medicated feed. So that feed already has an antibiotic in it. Right. And then they can also go in and they can give injection antibiotics or they can put it in the water. And so these animals are just being fed a high level of antibiotics, period. That means that their immune systems are not working like they should because their immune systems don't have to work. Right, exactly. And not work well because those antibiotic or the antibiotics are already in their system doing what their immune system should be doing. 
<laughs> you know, that's going to be shocking to a lot of people because you just said something that's kind of being engineered a little bit, I think, in our society because of the prescriptions, you know, and everything that we do. And, you know, and you said, you know, it's in the water. How do they use it in the water? Uh, there's there's plenty of antibiotics that you can just dump into a water. And whenever those animals drink that water, they get a, you know, a dose of those antibiotics. And then and, on the on the feed, who how how do you do the feed? Who who's supplying the feed? Uh well, I mean, you could get the you could get medicated feed from Tractor Supply or any of your local. So it's uh, all it's just that easy to get, yep. basically. And in fact, getting non-medicated feed it's is harder. generally harder. Oh my gosh! Because you, and you have to be really careful because it's really easy to get a feed that you think oh it's not medicated, and then you have to look at the fine print on the tag and you go, well, wait a second. Yeah. And so that's a, that's a actually quite challenging. So it makes these animals, you know, just their bodies are not having to work like they normally do because being a little bit sick is really everybody, you know, anymore, everybody thinks, Oh, if you're sick, you know, you need to, you need to deal with it right now and you need to get those antibiotics sure. and you need to get it done. And that's really not the case. You know, there are certainly, as I said, antibiotics have their place whenever things get out of control. Right. But what, for the most part, being a little bit sick is not a big deal. I do not treat any sniffles that, you know, my sheep or my hogs have. Right. If they have the sniffles, then they just generally have the sniffles. I'll keep an eye on them. But I don't, you know, it's not like I run in there first sign of anything. On the yeah. beef side of things, it's a very similar thing because with the beef, one of the big things that's happening is those animals are being pushed so hard. So they're being fed a ration that's so high in protein that it's making their body basically run overtime. And so between being stuffed in there with tons and tons of other animals and being fed this extremely high, basically like think candy, if right. you just set a person in a cage and just only fed them candy, you know, they're going to put on some pounds really, really quickly, but that's, that's not a good, healthy, uh, you know, balanced diet at all. No, for and many, so, many other reasons. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so to combat that, you then, you know, as you're feeding those animals like that, you're going to have a fair number of them that are going to get sick because sure. then they don't, their immune systems don't have those base building blocks that they need to be able to deal with the incoming, you know, bacteria and viruses and whatever else. And so then those animals constantly have to be doctored and constantly have to be given antibiotics and having them get sick is just a normal thing. You know, they have what's called a pen rider for these big feed yards mm -hmm. and all the pen riders do every single day is they ride through those pens, gather up the ones that look even remotely sick and they doctor them. Right. And they're pretty good at that. They can kind of spot it pretty fast. And uh, it definitely takes some, some talent. Yeah. You know? yeah. Did you ever do that? I never did pen riding. I did take care of wheat pasture cattle. So that's, that's different because sure. that, that that's cattle that are out on a pasture. And generally these, the reason that we would have to doctor and we wouldn't have to doctor for very long, but you, we would get in cattle from South Texas. Right. So anytime that you move animals like that, you stress them out. And anytime an animal gets stressed or even people get stressed, your immune system takes a hit. Right. And so then they come from South Texas where, you know, the temperatures are much nicer to the Lana Estacado where everything's <laughs> terrible all the time. And then, uh, you know, sometimes they've, they've just been weaned. And so then they have that stress on top of them. And so then you have these animals that are pretty susceptible to getting sick. Yeah. So 
riding and riding through the wheat pasture cattle, you'd take a horse and you might ride through a section of land that had calves out on it. And you had to, you know, assess visually assess all these animals, but that's very different because my dad and I, we would doctor whenever those animals needed it. Sure. We were not doctoring all the animals, right? It was only the animals that couldn't deal with, you know, that stress and it got to be too much. You were just being responsible. I mean, right. that's, that's it. You weren't, you weren't trying to, to mess with the genetics. You weren't trying to mess with their aging as the, you know, maturing of the, of the animal, of the, of the meat, of the protein. You were just, you were just there to kind of stand by and assist as needed. Well, and those animals were doing what they were designed to do, graze and not they, they were designed to be grazing animals. They're not really designed to eat tons and tons of corn or any of those, you know, seed crops. Sure. They, they would have experienced some, but having that as 100 percent of their diet is really not how those animals are designed let's talk let's talk about that because there's going to be people and we want to kind of be responsible to the conversation because we've talked about a feedlot cow we've talked about a wheat pasture cow and then of course we'll talk about grass-fed too let's talk about um the life of a feedlot cow well generally so your your feedlot cattle contrary to what you might hear actually most of your cattle actually have a pretty similar lifestyle Mm -hmm. up to a certain point right right because the the cattle that come into the feed yards are raised by independent ranchers so those cattle are born and the they'll stay on their mamas you know as long as they need to and and uh and then eventually the the rancher will uh wean those cattle those cows off those calves right and then depending on how big the calves are they might then stay out on pasture and continue to get bigger but once they get to that appropriate size, whatever the producer or the feed yard is looking for, then they are sent to the feed yard. At that point, that's where they really split, split off in the trajectory. Because okay. at that point, then, you know, you're looking at 90, 180 days, 160 days, whatever. Again, it's all kind of up to the people in the feed yard and, and stuff. But right. they, they put them on that high, high, very what's called a hot protein ration yeah hot protein. and so they'll they'll put them on there for like i said 90 days 180 days and then after that then those animals are ready to go to generally the big big butcher houses right and that's where you then you know get all your beef from as far gotcha. as the feed yard cattle go gotcha so now let's set, let's go into the wheat pasture cattle and so the wheat pasture that's kind of so those animals can go both ways as well because generally the wheat pasture would be up here in, in the lawn of Estacado. We have, and we generally have most years, a really good winter wheat crop. Right. And as that wheat is growing in the vegetative stage before it has the wheat head. Right. That's a really high quality forage. Uh -huh. And so you can take these smaller animals that maybe are just weaned or maybe are only, you know, 500 600 pound animals, 300 pound animals, whatever you have. And that wheat will actually let them gain quite a bit of weight naturally, you know, organically sure. on for the time that they're on that wheat. And so from there, then again, those animals can go into the feed yard uh -huh. or 
you know, those animals, if they're a grass finished animal, then they can just be moved. Generally those wheat pastures kind of played themselves out by, you know, March mm-hmm. and, and sometimes longer, but then those animals can be moved to more of a warm season pasture and right. they can continue that out. And if they're grass finished, then they never see any of the feed yard. They don't see the smaller pens or anything like that. Sure. And that's, is that usually kind of decided by demand of cattle at that time? Is that something decided by, Hey, I need to make a profit this year off this cattle. Uh, is it? Yeah. So with, if you're talking profit, there's a, there's a big difference. There's not a lot of people that do the grass finished because you have to have those independent markets like a farmer's market. And you have to have a processor that you can bring the animal mm-hmm. to and everything else. So there's a whole, there's several different layers to that, that a lot of ranchers don't want to mess with because generally the, the common uh, kind of setup is to take those animals that are about to go into the feed yard. And if you need to make a profit, then you take them to a livestock auction, like the Amarillo livestock auction. Right. And you sell them through the ring and they either go to another rancher who then tries to put weight on them and then, you know, into the feed yard or, you know, feed yards sometimes do buy their, buy their own animals straight from those livestock auctions. Right. But that's the only place in the conventional setup. That's the only place that a rancher makes their money is at the livestock auction. Gotcha. So do you think that if, if there was more regenerative uh, ranching, more options to finish off on grass, if this, I don't even know if this is the right question to ask, if there was more processors that they had more options to facilitate that processing, harvesting of that animal uh, instead of the, like the, let's say like the four major processors that we have now, it's, you know, like what you're doing, you're opening up your own processing plant. If there was more of you, there would be more options. People would actually change their uh, harvesting a little bit, producing and harvesting a little bit different. I think that we would see some change. And um, one of, one of the best qualities and worst qualities about a farmer or rancher is how hard headed we are. Right. I know. And so change in the agriculture world comes very slow. Yeah. And like I said, it's a good and bad thing. Yeah. But that I think one of the main reasons that these markets that this style of raising animals hasn't been more pronounced is because again, we lost those small town markets and those opportunities because most ranchers just want to raise their animals. They don't want to have to worry about the processor. They don't want to have to worry about getting the animals sold. Right. So if you did have more opportunities, there would be lots of opportunities, not only for just the rancher that wants a better payout for their animal, but you'd have, you'd have all those people, all those jobs created at those processors. Right. And you could even have potentially the jobs created for the selling of that meat afterward. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think that's kind of the path that you're trying to forge here in a lot of ways with what you're doing. Um, I don't want to skip the process of educating right now. So let's just let's talk about um, let's go back right now and talk about the history of cattle as you've known it from growing up until it is right now what changes have you seen what dangers do you see ahead and how are how are we gonna basically get ahead of this well growing up it was you know i grew up and i got to be at the animal livestock auction as a very small kid you know and see all that and uh 
it, it was always hard for me to wrap my mind around because the prices that people would generally pay were really never based on the animal. Of course, how much it weighed factored in, but as far as the actual price, if they were paying 90 cents a pound or $1.80 a pound or whatever, whatever price they ended up paying at the, at the auction, that generally was driven by these speculative beef markets. Right. And so it was kind of, it was loosely based on these markets that in my view and in in the world that I grew up in, I was like this, these is far away. Whoever's putting Oh yeah. The price of June cattle is going to be a dollar 20. Like what, what do they know about these animals? What do they know about the ranchers? Like what this, it just, it never made sense to me. Sure. But that was just, but you had to, you had to do it. Right. I mean, yeah. and the, that, was that was the only the way process. you could, yep. That was the only way a rancher could make their money. Right. And so as you know, generally what they always said is that the price of cattle was supposed to follow the price of corn. Huh? Really? However, as I got older and it was supposed to be a, a, a price by demand as well, the more beef demand, you know, in theory, the higher, you would get paid for those animals. Right. But again, that never actually tracked. That's what all the producers would say, but that's not really what was going on. Okay. And so as, as I got older, you know, I watched my dad once he bought, started buying his own cattle and stuff like that. You know, I watched him, he'd have to watch the market super close. And he'd have to be like, all right, I need to be ready to sell these animals on this week or this month or, you know, whatever he was. And, and then it was always a risk because he could have a wonderful group of cattle, bring them to auction. If the right people weren't there, they might bring 20 cents left, less a pound. Wow. Which doesn't sound like a lot, but whenever you're talking about an 800 pound animal, that ends up being a fair amount of amount of money. Yeah. And the profit margins aren't that big for or a cow. No, if, <laughs> if my dad, a lot of times now my dad was because he grew up doing this and worked in the livestock auction and because he kind of went out of the norm and bought these quote unquote less desirable cows that he hmm. then was able to turn around and, and they would, they would make amazing calves. Right. But because of that, his profit margin, generally, if he could make a hundred dollars a head on a calf, he was doing really good. Wow. That just puts and some of those guys, some of those guys were not even making close to that. Really? Wow. Okay. Because by the time you get your time in the animal and, and then all of the costs associated with moving these animals and, and your time involved and everything else. If a 800 pound animal goes for just for easy math, a dollar a pound, that's $800, but you got to take out everything that you had in that animal. Cause at that point, that animal might be a year or a year and a half old. Right. So there's a fair amount of input into that. Yeah. Um, okay. So saying that how it used to be, and you, you brought up a good point, the, the cow should uh, follow the price of corn. What was the connection there? Why, why does that have such a correlation? That was based on more of how the feed yards, as far as I could understand, because again, it never made that much sense. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the things that kind of turned me off of, wanting to be just a solely a rancher that sold at the markets. Right. Um, because it, it was supposed to be connected through the feed yards because 
corn is what you fed these animals whenever they were brought to the feed yards. And so the higher the price of corn, the less that those cattle would be worth because if those cattle were worth a lot of money, it's hard for those feed yards to make a profit. Sure. And so the, it, it would, it would be kind of inverse of the price of corn. So the lower the price of corn, the higher they could, they could pay for those animals and, and still, you know, make their profit. Right. Have you seen that change uh, until kind of, kind of like what you're doing? What, what is, what is changing? What are you trying to kind of re-pioneer into the whole ranching and producing and processing kind of uh, situation that you're creating? With, with the system as it's been, ranchers were getting paid one time, one instance for that animal. Right. They missed out on the processing side. So the money that the processor makes. Right. They, and they missed out on the money that the meat actually itself makes. Right. So what we are able to do with this little processing facility is we're able to reclaim two payouts on a single animal. Exactly. Because at that point, we're getting paid for the animal. We're getting paid for the processing. And then we're making the money off the meat. Right. So the profit margin goes from 100 to $200 a head, more like $800 a head, six dollars to $800 a head. So almost three times, again, because you're, you're you know, recollecting two of those lost payouts. Right. And so those animals become that worth that much more. So let's uh, we're going to come back to that because that, that's a fascinating thing. I think people don't understand because you're really breaking down the, the money trail here. And, and then we're going to talk about where that money trail has been going. But let's uh, let's say, all right, this is Justin. He is now it's 2021. What have you been doing the last two years that got us to this conversation right now? Tell us what you're going to try to, that you are accomplishing uh, the, the, the education that you had to give yourself and the type of laws and regulations that you had to become an expert in to kind of get to where we are today. So let's see, I guess I'm trying to think back. It probably would have been 19. Um, I got a call out of the blue. At this point, I'd been selling at the farmer's markets and I would bring the frozen meat from my animals that I actually had to bring to a processor that was about 70 miles one way. Okay. And so they would process those animals for me. I would get the meat back that was frozen and then I would take that meat and sell it at the farmer's markets, get it into actual people's hands. Right. And so I was doing that, but really the big limiter all the time was i never could get in animals exactly whenever I wanted to. And it was always very limited on the amount of animals I could actually get into that process. And so that, that always limited me. It always made things hard. Mm-hmm. And, and so I was, I was selling this meat and out of the blue, I get a call from our local health department and they, the, uh, the gentleman on the other side of the line, was just ranting and raving about how much of a threat to public safety (laughs) my stuff was. And he threatened several very severe, what, what seemed severe to me at that time consequences, of course, come to find out he, he would doesn't have any kind of authority to even do anything remotely close to what he was telling me. Right. But he was, he, he said that I had to shut down immediately and I couldn't do 
what I'd been doing. And, and I was super confused because as you know, the meat that you get from me, whenever it's frozen, I mean, it's, it's a brick. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you could, you yeah. could probably break, you know, a piece of wood with some of that frozen meat. It's frozen. It, it's, exa- <laughs> it's done exactly like uh, it's supposed to be done. Yes. Yeah. And so it, it blew my mind that that could be a health hazard. Right. And so it took, I actually, at that point I was, I was super panicked. So I actually called Daryl Birkenfeld with Ogallala Commons and he got me hooked up with uh, another organization called the Farmer Ranch Freedom Alliance. Okay. And, and they're based in Texas. They, they work only with in Texas and uh, they, they're based in Austin and they try to work on the food laws that are in the state of Texas. Uh, right. Judith McGreary is, is the head of that organization and she's an yeah. amazing woman. You've told me about her. I, 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 I'm looking forward to meeting her at some time for sure. Yeah, for sure. And so she was able to kind of help direct me and go, wait, well, wait a second, let's look at this because there's, there's no, you would think that there would be some sort of resource, whether USDA or state or something where you could type into Google and say, okay, I want to be a meat producer. What, what laws do I need to follow? There's not anything remotely even close to that. Nope. Nothing exists that there's no one document. There's no one organization you can talk to. That's like, oh yeah, you want to grow that? Okay. Well then you'll, you know, you need to know these laws and they're the ones that affect you. Mm Mm-hmm. It was all I had to delve deep into that to figure out what in the world even applied to me. And then most importantly, what actual organizations could enforce those laws. Right. Because there's lots of organizations that think they have lots of power and then come to find out they don't have the authority to enforce anything that they were talking about. So you basically had to investigate, you had to research, you had to be an analyst of the current system and to see you had to break it down because it's a very um, non-connected system by design that creates a whole bureaucratic bureaucratic process that basically makes it very hard for somebody like you to basically work within the system that is enforcing your life and your actions, basically, right? Right. Yeah, because even, you know, even if you want to be compliant, it's almost impossible to figure out how to be compliant. Sure. And, and so it's a, it's just a crazy thing. And so working with farm and ranch freedom lines, I actually got in on the uh, 2019 legislative session within Texas. And we worked on getting several food laws passed that were better. We actually ended up getting the uh, cottage food law, which is a, a food law that applies to people that are doing canned goods primarily, but also baked goods. Mm-hmm. And so we actually got that law improved because before it was a very, very specific list of things you could and could not do. And there were all these little nuances. Right. And so working through that, we actually were able to get that changed to where now basically something that's shelf stable, if you can sit it on the countertop for seven days and it's not going to spoil the Texas cod food laws actually are over that, but that also doesn't include the animal proteins. Okay. So that's just an example. I mean, wait, I can, sure. I can go down a huge rabbit hole with uh, all the different laws like that. <laughs> right. But, so working with with Judith, I was able to get that kind of figured out. And as I've mentioned, getting the animals processed was always the kind of the crux. It, it was always the thing that limited me. And it was always hard because even as much as I liked my processor, if they had an 80 or an 85 percent accuracy on the cuts, that yeah. was good. 
Really? So generally they, they, they always messed up something. It was just what did they mess up and how badly did they mess up? Right. Uh, do you think that was because of their, they were taxed out because they're always in high demand. Of course oh, yeah. we know that. And it's maybe the lack of skill that hit, that was lost as these big pr- uh, processors took over the industry. Maybe some artisan skill was lost as well. Far there's, as the there's probably some of that, but anytime that you start having to process tons and tons of animals over a short period of time, just mm-hmm. the likelihood of a mistake, even yeah. even if you're doing the best job you can, the likelihood of, the, of a mistake starts going up and up and up and up. Right. And and so that that just it kind of was what it was. And so then I was talking to my dad about this and and, you know, we were I, I at one point in time, I'd actually already looked at it and what it took to even start to open. Not that I could even find everything, but even just some of the base things on what it would take to open your own processing facility. I was like, goodness, yeah. because at this, at this point, actually in, in 2015, I opened my own custom exempt, uh, pro- poultry processing facility, right? It's a little 10 by 10 room that I designed, you know, and, and the state of Texas actually licenses that, you know, little facility. Sure. And that's how I'm at because a poultry processor doesn't exist. The closest one that I could actually bring poultry to is in Kansas, eight hours away. <laughs> wow. I've so, heard that story all over the country. I mean, I've heard it over and over again, that that's the biggest thing is they're having to drive a hundred miles, 70 miles, you know, whatever yeah. it is. So, okay. So the, and, and luckily through all that, you know, I got to know my state inspector, and and he's an awesome guy. He's all about this kind of food uh, sovereignty type stuff. Is he? And he and he, he you know he he was always passionate. He's the one that helped me get that poultry facility because, like I said, the the uh, at at the time that I got that poultry facility, I had no idea about any of the laws, and it was only because of him because he basically stepped in and kind of got my stuff situated like it needed to be right of course you know he it, he couldn't really explain it to me but he got it situated where i could at least get that facility up and going gotcha because at that time i wasn't doing 100 chickens a year sure so there you know the again the 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 quality of 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 your work changes depending on how much you do and how fast you do it and everything else so right but so at that point then my dad and i my dad was like well we just need to go for it we need to open a facility and I said, okay, well, let me get to work. I, I have to figure out how in the world we can even be compliant doing this because even the state inspector, he could tell me what they needed, but he couldn't tell me what these other organizations would need gotcha. or even who to talk to. Right. Okay. Let's, so, when you, whenever you say that, when you say organizations, other organizations, ballpark, how many are you having to deal with when you say that? Well, it ended up, I had, so I talked to USDA, which didn't end up, I didn't end up having to do that. Then you have TCEQ, so that's the Environmental Quality uh, Commission okay. for Texas. Gotcha. Uh, you've got local uh, health departments. Okay. And so those ended up being the main ones. Okay. However, you had to, I had to go in and learn who in the world even had jurisdiction over what. Because there were several like smaller entities that thought that they had that they could regulate for instance the wastewater that would be coming out of this facility right and so i had to learn and say well wait a second 
actually TCEQ that wrote the Texas Administrative Code already has in the code itself a section for processing facilities as long as they're under a certain amount of animals a week. And in that Texas Administrative Code, it actually gives you options on what you can and can't do with your wastewater. Gotcha. And so then I had to learn about all that. <laughs> and and actually the, the the local representative for TCQ here, uh, Brittany, she's awesome. Uh, and and she was one of the few governmental uh, employees that I, whenever I contacted her and told her what I was trying to do, and I asked how to be compliant, she said, "You know what? I don't know, but li- give me a day or two, and I will get it figured out." She was basically the only entity that actually said that the other ones that didn't really know they just jumped in and said well you're gonna have to have this this and this and they did they had no idea what they were talking about and a lot of times they ended up being wrong right so whenever you say this do you really think do you think maybe that this is like uh people people are just working in the unknown right now because this has been something that was you know used to be part of our society used to be part of our agriculture um you know back at like our grandparents did but as we've evolved that all the power went into the the corporate processors of course the global corporations everything that it is that people really just don't know the check and balance system uh on the level that you're trying to accomplish and maybe that it's just something that you're almost pioneering and a whole new understanding of how this is going to be done. I think there's some of that. I, I think one of the big things is that a lot of these people that are in these positions, they're very well school trained for the most part. Right. However, they generally have very little to no real world experience. Gotcha. And along with that are we've we've had so many laws developed around food safety and for good reason, because whenever you have these processors that are doing 300 beef an hour and stuff like that, you can have really, really bad situations where tainted meat gets put out and makes people sick and everything else. And so I think that a lot of these organizations come at it from with that mindset. And, and really, to their credit, they're right in that mindset. Mm-hmm. However, whenever you start talking about the scale that we're going to be on, where we're 30 head a week max is right. what we can do. Right. We don't have enough cooler space for any more. Exactly. And so that radically changes the, the level or maybe the uh, possibility of a threat mm-hmm. with that processed meat because sure. at that point we're not doing 300 animals an hour. Right. We're doing an, an animal in two hours or two and a half hours or whatever, you know, whatever it would end up. Right. And it's one or two guys slowly and methodically working their way through that animal. And anytime that they think, you know, if, if you were cutting on a piece of meat and say you saw that your, your knife was dirty in a low stress low amount of animals per hour kind of situation you can go oh i'll just get a different knife or i'll wash that knife right problem averted not not a big deal right they they those big processors don't have that kind of luxury 
it's just an assembly line and it's fast yep. moving. That's, that's, it's, it's, I've seen them. I mean, you've seen them. It's, it's something a lot, nobody ever sees them. You yes. know, they don't know how they work. So it's, it's, a, it's quite the machine that's running through there. And, and so with, whenever you look at that, that's a very, very different situation. And these, these organizations, they don't know how to address it because that's, that's not something that's even been looked at right. you know, within the food, within the food safety sphere. Okay. That, that, that's, that's a good picture. That's yeah. I understand where, what you're talking about. Cause and it makes total sense. It's mm-hmm. just like, it, it's because it's a- apples and oranges as far as let's say food safety, you, you can't compare because it's just, you're not going to have the cause and effect that you would have in two separate environments. And so that's, that's uh that's good to know moving forward with our continued conversation. So go ahead. And so actually in a, Whenever COVID hit, uh, trying to remember, it was either Montana or Wyoming. They actually passed a law that allows for on-farm processing of beef with no facility mm-hmm. at all, as long as it's going to the end customer, as long as the person who's buying it is eating it themselves. They're not going and selling it at a restaurant or something sure. like that. Sure. And I, again, I, I really supported that because of the difference that you're talking about there. At that point, you're talking about somebody who's most likely already processed beef for their own family Uh that has then raised this animal for a year and a half, two years. And at that point, that person that raised that animal for a year and a half, two years is not going to be flippant about how they process that animal. They're going to be very methodical and very centered on the quality and doing it right. They're not going to be messing that up at all that's you know that's that's their stuff and so the again that that changes it even from what we're talking about with my facility to that scale because at that point that's the real likelihood of your your food safety issues just it almost goes away sure yeah that makes total sense and with your food safety too that's i think that we've kind of gotten maybe let's see what's a good word for it because of how these uh stories have been covered people are very very concerned about food safety and historically food safety was not that big of an issue because of the scale and because of how things were handled right before that Right. Well, it makes sense is because they, they totally changed the industry they went, you know, they went industrial food complex on us. They went big corporation on us instead of kind of the micro mesh networking that, you know, we, our grandfathers and everybody had already pioneered that worked very good for the communities. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's just, there's just a big, big difference. And, and, you know, you always hear, well, we got to feed the world. Well, (laughs) a lot, a lot of the, a lot of the beef that's produced around here that goes into those feed yards is then exported to other countries. We don't eat the beef that's grown here, here. Right. It's exported. And then we import the United States imports beef from other countries. And a lot of times that's what ends up in the store because that beef that's imported, as long as that beef is still intact. So either a half or a whole animal, Right. If that if that beef is cut up then in a cutting facility 
they can put a product of the United States on that label, on, on that piece of meat, even though that yeah. animal is not grown in the United States. <laughs> You're about to open up a lot of people's <laughs> eyes here, man. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. People are going to start going, Oh, okay. Let's, let's go through that again. Where is this cattle coming from brazil is it coming from there's there's lots of different places it, it comes from uh brazil uh i think nibia or navia or mm -hmm. there's there's nibia. you can you can go online and you can actually look up the the u.s beef import numbers right. and it'll break it down by country where all this beef is coming from and it's because that imported beef is cheaper actually than the beef that's grown here sure and so that's that it's all that global in my mind, kind of silly game that they play where they, yeah, it's the export. one world food. Yeah. It's the one world food group. Like you said, feed the world. Uh, you know, they play on people's guilty consciences and everything. It's just, you know, people's ignorance, uh, of the food industry itself. Uh, let's put, let's put that in perspective. You just said it. If you're eating food beef from a local store on the Yano Estacado, basically um, we have 14 million cows in the state of Texas is basically at any given time. How much of that meat is staying here if you are not buying it from your local producer? Uh, basically none. There right. might be some, but right. basically none. So it's a, if you, if you start talking about the scale that we're talking about, you can make some very radical changes. And if by saying radical changes, uh, would you say what you're doing is radical or would you say it's just kind of the process that we're going to go through to get our beef back to our state? I, I definitely think it's pretty radical, mm -hmm. but it's not unfounded because if if you know anything about the ranching uh, side of things, the common story anymore is hearing how many ranchers are going out of business. Yes. Because they don't make that profit that they need to with their animals. Right. And so then they have to do other things to try to subsidize that, whether they sell the water from their land or they sell the oil and gas rights or, you know, whatever else they have to do to try to subsidize that. And, and so if we could get, in my mind, if we could even get one of these facilities per county, sure. all of a sudden you start, there's, there, we're not going to have, as, as you talked about before, we're not going to have the 90% of people jump in right away. No, it's going to be the 2% of people or 3% of people that go, wait a second, I have this opportunity instead of taking it in the knee, whenever I bring them to the livestock auction, I can bring them to this processor and maybe the processor buys them, or maybe the person who's selling the meat afterward buys them, or maybe the, uh, the producer themselves maintains control over the animal the entire time and sells it themselves. Right. Either way, you're opening up this avenue that used to exist and used to be very good for the community as a whole. And, and it, it, it would, it would just, the, the amount of change and the amount of opportunity you could create is just phenomenal because on top of that, you're talking about creating all these good paying jobs as well. That's sure. one of the things about our plant is we're not, we're going to pay our guys very well, right? Because we want them one to stay and two, they're going to be very highly skilled. 
and they should be compensated for that. And because they're highly skilled, it makes it easier for us for this processing facility to make the profit it needs to in order to do what it needs to. And so at this point, you're creating actual really nice paying living wage jobs, not some sort of $10 an hour, $15 an hour job at some, you know, mm, big facility. Right. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because what that kind of brings back is it's, it's a skill set, you know, that in the past, you know, I've seen pictures, you know, I remember the butcher being, you know, he was, he was masterful, you know, he knew his trade. And if you, somebody like you comes along and it's a smaller environment, uh, it's, it's more of a, a low time preference, high value type of job that we've lost in our society. People actually younger kids now, especially something like the Ogallala commons, you know, they're saying, Hey, you know, this type of processing skill set is going to be coming back. You know, we have this guy out here in Canyon, Texas. He has a wonderful facility. He is a regenerative farmer and rancher. You know, these kids are going to go, wow, man, I can, I can, I can bring that skill set back. And so it becomes, it becomes a dialogue. It becomes, a narrative it becomes a target it becomes an aspiration it becomes a destination for you know conversation all kinds of things and and i want people to understand because here in amarillo texas we have tyson we have cargill we have jbs do we have national here justin um, I don't know if they have one close or not on that. Yeah, I, I, I haven't seen it. But these these uh, these companies, usually they import people from different countries in. They pay them, like you said, $10 an hour, $11 an hour. I remember when it was $8 an hour and they're on their feet. You know, they work these eight to 10 hour shifts. They bus them to the processing plants. And, you know, this cattle is not even being raised here locally in, in Emerald, Texas, cattle country from tradition and heritage. And, you know, just look how disconnected that whole system is. And you look at the money exchange right there. Where is that money going? Who is it going to? It's not going to the local community. You know, it's not going to these families that have lived here yep, all these sure. years, you know, and what are you going to do? You're going to create by doing what you're doing. You're rebuilding community. You're rebuilding uh, a food supply line that's actually a hell of a lot more secure and something that we know as a community that we can trust and rely on. I mean, I think it's fascinating. There's so much here that we can un un uncover with this conversation and it's going to be it's going to be, I think, uh, very valuable to, you know, continue. What I want to talk about right now is let's talk about you in the cattle that you are, the beef, the animal protein that you're going to be supplying to our community. Tell us, you know, the, the raising of the cattle and the, the length of time that you're, these, these cattle get before they go to harvest. And just tell us the process. And you said 30, you know, about a week. And, you know, what do you think you can you can supply the community and all that? Just kind of tell us what we can expect. OK, you bet. So the animals that um, are going to be running through this facility, especially to start with, are going to be all cattle. So all the cattle that are ready to go right now are all animals that were raised by my dad and birthed by the cows that he has. Right. And so we're, we're, we've actually got about a hundred or, or more animals that are ready to go. Sure. And uh, so those animals are born, they're born out on pasture. 
you know, where they're designed to be. And it's kind of, as we, I explained to you before, it's, they follow that kind of general trajectory where they get to grow up and they get to nurse on their moms and they get to be in the country that they're designed to be in and they get to graze and they get to experience a really high quality life. And then depending on, so my dad has uh, started a little feeding operation. However, the two main differences between that and a big feed yard are that he's not feeding a hot ration. Right. It's a really high protein ration. It does. It's, it's higher, but it's not something that's pushing those animals to their limit. And then he's also not doling out antibiotics. Sure. Like it's candy. Sure. So he's doing both the grain finished and the grass finished. So we've also got grass finished animals that are never, ever going to be in that finishing yard. Mm-hmm. They're still just out on pasture and they're just, you know, getting to graze and grow as they normally do depending on the animal. So some of our animals, we've actually had a really high success and this has kind of been a, a trial and error thing for us. And, but we've actually had a pretty good success for the grass finished animals with a, about a 900 pound animal, which if you have a good year and good grass, that's only an animal that's a year or a little over a year old. Really? Wow. And so that's not the norm with most, most people, the way they do the grass finish. Most people hold that animal until that animal's two, two and a half. However, as, as my dad and I were looking at it, if you have a 900 pound animal and you bring it to the butcher, generally you're getting back about 300 pounds of cut meat. Right. If you were, if we were to hold that animal another year and get them to that two or two and a half year stage, they might be like 1100 pounds at that point. However, because of how cattle are, there's a fair amount of stuff that we just can't eat. So by the time that you get that animal cut back down, you're only getting maybe 380 or 400 pounds of meat. Okay. So that, that whole year only nets you about 80 to hundred pounds more meat. Right. And the quality of it is not any different. Gotcha. So, cause we've not had any issues with marbling. We've not had any issues with, you know, everything that everybody told us is, you know, going to tank it. Cause even, even the way that we're doing it with those 900 pound animals is very different than what the norm, you know, is for most grass growers. Gotcha. Okay, let's real quick, because I know people are going to jump all over this. You brought up marbling and uh, finishing off with grain. The big, big understanding, everybody goes, well, I'm not buying this beef unless it's grass fed. And that's all. So let's 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 educate everybody. Grass fed all the way to harvest. Then something might be, you know, wheat fed, grass fed and then grain finished. And what is the difference in the marbling? What is the difference in the product that they're eating and what, what is the big thing that people should worry about or should look for whenever they're, you know, eating a cow that is strictly grass fed or something that's grain finished? With your grass finished animals, generally they're going to be leaner. Right. How they store those fats is different because of the fats that they're taking in to start with. And a lot of times they have more of a yellow colored fat. Okay. Generally, they're not quite as big of an animal as something that's been finished on grain, but you still have a very high quality cut of meat whenever everything's said and done. The grain finished animals, they are going to have a higher marbling. In other words, more fat in the muscle 
So if you like a ribeye that has a lot of that fat in there, the, the grain finish is the way that you probably would prefer to go. That fat generally is going to be more of a white fat mm-hmm. and it's going to be stored differently than the grass finished counterparts. Unfortunately, that's a really hot button topic. And so it's really, really hard to find any good scientific literature that's not dubious in who's funding it, if that makes sense. <laughs> it makes sense to me. <laughs> because so because I there, a lot of people claim these health benefits, you know, to grass finished or or whatever. Sure. However, almost all the studies I've ever seen are either the conclusion they come to has to do with who's funding them. So if it's a grain finished operation that's funding this study, they they find and they say, well, actually the grain finished animals and that fat is just as healthy for you. Right. If it's the organizations that are the grass finished ones, then they say exactly the opposite. Right. And so it's really hard. I'm sure there's grains of truth in those studies. However, it's really hard because of the way that you can mess around with statistics mm-hmm. and the way that you can mess around with how you collect your data and how you look at everything. It's really hard to find just one definitive and say, oh, yep, this is this is what it is. And that's why I never and will probably never, ever sell any of this based on the the quote unquote health benefits, because there's sure. just not not a good way to quantify that. You don't know the source of the of the real intention of that information. You don't know who really is the source of the seed of that information. Right. And that 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 is something that you see all over the agricultural world. I mean, we know that from, you know, you call it the grain companies, you know, from the massive big grain companies of Cargill, you know, all of them, basically, that that is involved in this. And so. Uh, whenever you say grain finished, where's this grain? Like if, if you're finishing off corn, where, where's the corn coming from? It depends on what feed mill you're getting it from. Right. Uh, most of your feed mills, it's, it's pretty much all commodity corn. Mm-hmm. Um, unless that feed mill is doing something different. Right. But if that feed mill is getting in specialty corn, that also then affects the price of that feed. Sure. <clears throat> so, there's trade-offs on everything. It's not really a perfect system, but if that's what the customer prefers, if it's being done in the right way, that grain finishing is being done in the right way and being done responsibly, it's still way better, a much higher quality product than even anything you can get in the store for sure. sure. And you know that those animals were not put through the ringer right get that achieved let's talk about that the compromise of the of the purity of the meat uh where is it become detrimental for that meat you know high stress uh bruising there's so many things that happens that people don't realize as far as a cow as it's going to harvest and getting processed well one of the big things so one of the big and probably the easiest things that I always talk to people about with that is anytime that a animal or a human is stressed, you release those stress hormones, right? Those stress hormones are designed to make your body be ready to go into fight or flight. Sure. And so they're really beneficial whenever you need them. However, if you are causing an animal to have high amounts of those stress hormones and then be butchered, those hormones don't break down once that animal dies. Right. Right. And so then that will affect 
the quality of your meat just right there. And that could be that that could just be on how the processor handles the animal. You I could have raised an entirely great animal. And then if the processor does a terrible job on their end and gets them super stressed out, you can have some some of that negativity associated with that. Yeah, I saw some meat the other day where that the the rancher showed me two briskets basically, and you could tell that this cow had basically totally stressed. Two, mm-hmm. two, you know, one that was done correctly, and one that was basically just he he knew he goes, yeah, this I know that cow was totally stressed whenever it was harvested, and uh, so that's a good point. I don't think people understand that, you know, and how that happens quite often in in the bigger you know, basically production and harvesting and processing places. And somebody like you, you're going to, what would happen if you had a stressed out animal and you're, you're going to go to harvest it and put it down and, and butcher it. If it, if it was having a hard time, you know, you would, you'd back it out, wouldn't you? Right. We're going to be small enough and slow enough that if there's a, an animal that's just having a terrible hard time, then you can just let them sit. Right. And you can do the other animals in that time frame. Exactly. And let them kind of relax. And then, and then, you know, but probably we're not going to have an issue with that to start with, because as it stands right now, these animals, we, we can leisurely walk them to the facility, right? No stress, just open the gates that we need to open and, and they come no, you know, chasing them around. None of that. It's just a easy, as far as they're concerned, they don't, they don't, they would have no idea what they're even going to. They just go, Oh, it's an open gate. Okay. Come on. Let's, you know, let's go. Yeah. I saw the facility. It's, it's, it's kind of streamlined for sure. And, you know, it's just, like you said, it just flows basically. Um, Going back to the beef, you know, that's one thing I want people to understand is that, it depends on what type of consumer you are, what type of, because a lot of times, you know, the grass fed isn't going to have the marbling and that's what a lot of people love, but you know, it is the, you know, it, the, the nutrition value is extremely strong. It's extremely there. Um, you know, grain finished is, you know, a beautiful cut of meat. I, and so that's going to be down to, you know, the user's choice. And, and that's something you're always going to provide, right? You're always going to have either right. grass fed or grain, grain, finished and so that's always going to be somebody because i i eat both i mean i think most of the stuff i've bought off of you so far has been grass-fed yeah it's been the grass finished and it's just it's it's amazing i'm never buying you know of course i i've got plenty of beef now, but, <laughs> um so everybody out there there's going to be choices you know and that's what that's what's going to be very good about this um because I don't want to go long, long, long tonight because we're going to have, we're going to have a lot of conversations coming up. Um, but let's, let's uh, give some expectation. What do you, when do you think, because, you know, I promised everybody I was going to buy a cow and I was going to uh, take it across the state of Texas and, you know, a quarter of a cow to somebody in Abilene, a quarter of a cow to somebody mm-hmm. in San Angelo, Brownwood, Austin, wherever it is. Um, what can we expect moving forward as far as you, what do you, think your timeline is we've uh, submitted the grant of inspection down to austin and i got it emailed down this week and i've basically got all the regulatory paperwork finished up and we're pretty much like 99 done on the construction so at this point we're just going to have to wait for austin to bounce the application back up to amarillo and then the inspectors can come out and do the initial inspection at that point hopefully we'll pass with no issues and we'll be able to get rolling because as soon as we pass 
we're able to start processing animals. And okay. so that first week that, that we're past and we're going, we'll actually have ground beef and then I'll have pork and lamb back in stock because those animals don't have to sit there and age a cow that's going in for just ground beef. They just have to get down in the, you know, the carcass has to cool down to temperature before you can cut it sure. and then it's ready to go. So we can have ground beef in like 30 hours. Right. Gotcha. So, so then after, after that, then the actual, the other beef grass finished animals hang for less time. They dry age for less time because they don't have that fat covering that's required for long age times. Right. And so grain or the grass finished animals are generally a 10 to 14 day age. The grain finished animals are more like an 18 to 20 day age. Right. Um, and as far as um, if I was going to come to you and, you know, I've told everybody because, you know, you know, I'm in the Bitcoin world and everything. Mm-hmm. And we did have we did have a rancher. I don't do you even know uh, Cole Bolton? He's a, he's a team roper. No, yeah. not offhand, but okay. I, I, I did listen to that podcast though. So. Yeah. And, you know, I met him in, you know, we onboarded him with Bitcoin and, and you and I haven't even talked about Bitcoin yet or anything like that. But you said you were kind of curious to see what it was, but I'll definitely be talking to you, you know, if you want to, but he, you know, he basically onboarded it's, Basically, you know, you can use your smartphone just like you do. It, it's, it doesn't really mess with your exchange or anything that you've already got set up. But uh, after he went, uh, he went live with uh, going Bitcoin, I, he just exploded down there in Austin. Well, and everybody's, yep. everybody's excited for it because, you know, if he needs to switch his money over into fiat, he can. But, uh, you know, so I, if I was going to come to you and I'd say, hey, you know, how much right now guesstimation would I buy, let's say, a grass grass-fed cow right now what would you think uh so uh money roundabout yeah just roundabout yeah uh so money wise that's you know you're looking at about 300 pounds cut meat back at about eight dollars pound so that's you know 22 to 2400 dollars for right okay and then what let's talk about that whenever we cut up a cow okay people buy half cows and buy quarter cows Mm -hmm. so when you buy a quarter cow how's that going to be different and what are the differences of because people went out there and say hey i want to buy half a cow i want to buy a quarter of a cow Mm -hmm. what what are they looking at as far as you know making that decision so that that really has to do with how much freezer space you're going to have right because a quarter of a cow, you know, is somewhere in the ballpark is 60 to 70 to maybe 80 pounds of meat. A half a cow is about 150 and then a whole right. beef is about 300. And as far as the cuts you get in that, they're pretty much similar across the board with the way that we do it. You don't have quite as much ground as uh, those big processors because we just, you know, we make more uh, detailed cuts. So we don't have tons of waste. So sure. generally about a third of the meat you get back is going to be the ground. Okay. And then two thirds is the actual cuts, you know, bone cuts, roasts, steaks, that fajita meat, you know, stew meat, that kind of thing. Right. And uh, as far as a half and a whole goes, you actually have more control over what specific cuts you get mm-hmm. or don't get that the quarter and the eighth, you don't have that control because that's only a small part of that animal. So we kind of have to cut it in a general way, Gotcha. but the half or the whole, you know, you can decide if you want a brisket or if you want that brisket cut into two, or if you don't want any roast and you want it all to be into stew meat, or if you only want ground or if you there, so you've got a lot of different options you can do 
whenever you start talking about those higher quantities. Whenever, you, whenever somebody could, like when I come up to you and I say, hey, Justin, I need to I want to buy a half cow from you. Um, mm-hmm. you are you going to say, well, here's your choices as far as how to have this cow cut? Yes. OK. Yeah. Uh, so it depends if you're if you're bringing in an animal to have it killed or if you're pre-ordering an animal that hasn't already been killed, because once we're open, I'll actually have the ability to provide a half a beef right That's away. That's true. That's true. But it's going to be cut in the general way that we do it. Right. So if you wanted a specialty cut, we can do that, but you're going to have that t- a length of time you have to wait because then we have to kill an animal and then it has to age right. for the number of days. And then we can get it cut up specifically. So we're going to have kind of both. We're going to have ready to go packages. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you can do the specialty packages. Right. So let's let's look at somebody like me. And because I have to be this person and, you know, of course, it's going to be through you. And whenever I'm down through Austin, it's going to be through uh, K&C. Uh, me, I want to I want to make sure I have beef security for a half a year. What are you mm-hmm. going to recommend to somebody like me that, you know, let's say I'm feeding um for me, myself, I'll just say four. That's a common, you know, yeah. let's say two adults, two children for a half a year. What are you going to recommend to me to do? Uh, a family of four for half a year. It's going to, of course, depend on how much they eat because somebody like you eats a lot of meat. Right. <laughs> and so a family of four, you're probably looking at, at at least a half okay. for a half a year. It might be a whole. Right. Because again, if they eat a whole lot of meat. Yeah, exactly. If you got like two teenage boys and a yeah. father that are just active all the time, it's going to be different. But right. if you have two children that are younger, you know, and just one guy like me eating two pounds of beef every day. Yeah, it's going to be. So you think basically on average family four or half a cow would be sufficient to shoot uh, for, for? Yeah, for probably six months. Really? Okay. That's good. So basically a cow a year. And yeah. I, you know, I was having a conversation the other day with somebody and we were talking about it. And I said, you know what you need to start looking at is that, you know, to really teach your children, because he has a couple of small children is that you need to go out there and find a cow, be proactive and go to somebody and say, will you raise this cow for me? You know, will you basically uh, raise it and harvest it? And I just pay for it because I live in the city and I want to be part of your process. I want to know you. I want to have that trust and respect for what you're doing and you trust and respect me for entrusting. And so I think that's something we can bring to the discussion here is that that's looking ahead. That's going, we're going to be okay with our beef supply for the next two years because one, we're going to buy this cow this year because it's already harvested. As we buy this cow, we're going to go ahead and invest in making this process happen for, you know, come to this time next year, we know that we have a cow that's coming for us. Mm-hmm. Do you see that happening? Is that something that you would encourage or? Oh yeah. Well, and I already have customers that have really? started to do that where they're, you know, they're getting the half or the whole. And of course I haven't been able to get things processed. So right now they've been having to wait, Sure, but they're, you know, I've already got people that have, already purchased their 
deposits for their halves and their holes and that kind of thing. Right. And so as soon as we're going, you know, uh, they're going to be the first ones at the door. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And you, you told, you told me you'd reserve one for me too, right? Yeah. <laughs> Good. Uh, yep. For sure. So, well, you know, I, I, I promise you, we're going to talk some history. Let's talk you and I, all right, guys, we're going to come back to Justin. Uh, we're going to come back to this and we're going to come back to all of the animal protein and the cow talk and all of that hopefully maybe next week give us some updates and everything uh i think that you don't mind talking right oh no <laughs> not, not about this stuff i no. can talk a long time about there this you go stuff, so. so we're gonna we're gonna make this kind of the weekly thing for a long time if we can you know schedules permitting and everything but i wanted to mean you've always kind of we like our history here, right? Mm-hmm. And we like the Yano Estacado. So um, I've been talking a lot about it. Uh, if you want to bring in something to the conversation that I've talked to you, I've talked about the Colt uh, five shooter, yep. then it went to the six shooter, of course. Talked about the Comanche Wars, uh, talked about the Texas Rangers. Uh, what would you like to bring the conversation? Because I'm going to bring a lot of heritage <laughs> and tradition back. So you, you, you have an entry point here into the Texas heritage of the of the Yano Estacado, the Texas Panhandle. Well, I think one of the cool things to look at if you're looking at that kind of history is right after the Indian Wars, those cattle drives that they would drive up to Dodge City. Right. Because those were yearly things. And the Texas Cowboys had some very uh, storied mm-hmm. reputations, especially in Dodge <laughs> City, because, you know, those those cowboys that were out on those trails for the, that length of time, they were they were a little bit pent up and kind of crazy after they you know got through that harsh harsh bit and so the uh the stories that you can you can find and you can read about from dodge city with the texas cowboys and and what they would what they experienced with a wider sure particular yeah i guess that movie that they did you know that they made the texas cowboy look kind of look like a bunch of jackasses but you know um I, I, maybe they were i don't know <laughs> well from what i what i've read and stuff it really depended upon the crew right because if the crew had a good foreman yeah. they, they could control his his cowboys that made all the difference sure sure uh let's talk about some of the cattle drives that ca- actually came through um, the Texas Panhandle, because that's basically why Amarillo came about, uh-huh. you know, was the cattle drive. And, you know, one thing that you and I know is Charles Goodnight and, uh, you know, how he established a lot of up here in the Panhandle. Right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and he was one of the big ones, him and and, and Loving. And, uh, you know, they they had several different trails and, and those actually changed throughout the years as the railroads came in right so the points of entry changed and where they needed to go changed yeah you know that's it's funny i think pretty much if you look at amarillo texas it was it was basically designed by the cow and the railroad that's mm-hmm. how our whole city makeup is and that was the that's how the whole city's um architecture everything was you know the flow of the roads the flow of you know everything mm-hmm. the water systems it was because of the cow 
the gal was first and then the railroad. And uh, I find that I find that fascinating. And I've always wondered about how much did we leverage the Comanche Indian in their in their lifestyle up here in the panhandle? Because, you know, we had the second largest natural canyon in the United States. And a lot of people don't realize that it's called Palo Duro Canyon. And, you know, that that was that that was, you know, a lot of the the Comanche Wars were fought there. And Mm -hmm. that was their home. I mean, that's you know, uh, Quanah Parker, he was the last Comanche chief. Yes. And so the, during the Comanche wars, his, his, what, uh, uh, his mother's name was, uh, gosh, oh, I, w- I would have remembered it before. I know yes. me too. I, I just went blank. Uh, well, she, she was, she was actually a, a prairie person and her family. They all, um, they were basically murdered by the Comanches and she was, I think she was eight years old or something yeah, like that. Young. And, uh, basically they, uh, they took her and she basically became a Comanche Indian basically. And she, she didn't know how to speak English. Uh, they basically raised her. Uh, she became a Comanche. She, she forgot her Anglo life. And then what happened? She was rescued, but she, she didn't think she was rescued. She thought yep. she'd been kidnapped again. And so, and she was uh, she basically was rescued by the Texas Rangers. And so that's a fascinating story because she was actually her basically, I guess you would say partner or husband in the Comanche tribe was a chief. And then um, their son became Quanah Parker, which he was the last chief of the Comanche Indians before they finally surrendered to the United States government. And there was a couple of wars that took place, the Adobe walls, the, that was a couple of times it took place. That's just really close to where you and I live. Yes, it is. And so, so I want to bring this uh, this this conversation of the uh, Texas history and tradition. So me and you will kind of buck up a little bit on our uh, recall of a couple of yeah. names. <laughs> and, uh, uh, we'll be we'll be ready to go next time we talk because that's kind of part of what I'm bringing in to everybody's. Like, let's start looking back at home. Let's you know create yep. this lifestyle. Let's 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 know where we came from, and you know and put some time into that that initial spirit required to eventually settle these lands, I think is really prominent in all these small town places up here in the Lana Estacado. You really are because we have all, we do have a lot of small towns here Mm -hmm. and just, you know, the the town that, you know, you and I love Canyon, Texas, it it is coming back in a way that I think that we can get a a very positive focus on. I mean, I love walking the town square down there and you go down there for the farmer's markets and there's just an energy down there. I don't think that you and I really had as I haven't seen it in a while, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you know, because we did we we took a lot of hits here you know ever since you were young you know and i was i was a little bit older than you of course but you know the 80s were tough i was i was young there you know our communities did get destroyed you know my grandfather's community got destroyed and it was all because of this industrial food complex and this one world food group that is basically trying to take over our food systems that we see today and you know what you're doing is is more positive and and actually essential to people's food security and food supply than i think anybody knows that's why i wanted to bring you in 
into this conversation of what I'm trying to do with the Texas Beef Initiative. And you know, you you're you're going to help me head this up. And you've mm-hmm. you've you've been in agreement with me. And you and I have talked a lot. And I just wanted to give everybody, you know, let everybody know the respect that I have for you. Um, I know that we're just now com- having this conversation, but um, guys, what Justin's doing is going to be essential for our state. It's going to be essential for our communities. And it's something that I hope that you guys tune into because I'm going to try to bring this information that's going to be very valuable for you guys to source this animal protein to your families because we've got to look at our food systems again. We've got to start bringing some food intelligence into our lives. And, you know, somebody like Justin, he's, he's bringing it. And he, he knows a lot. He knows the process. And um, you and I had a conversation and it was about other people in the state of Texas, you know, wanting to do processing plants, these micro processing, these mesh networks. How many people do you think that, you know, do you see waiting to do exactly what you've done? Well, it's already uh, exploded and, and uh, we're not even open yet. And right. there's, there's a gentleman down in East Texas that has bought a plot of land already. Uh-huh. and is going to be putting one of these on there. And he wants us to help him open probably at least 10 of these. Really? And wow. so like he's, he's already, he's, he's very well off, but he, like I said, he's already bought that plot of land. So he's, he's really, he's ready putting, to go. Yep. He's, he's putting his money, you know, where it counts. Right. And so this, if in, in, then I've also talked with uh, Judith McGurry with the Farmer Ranch Freedom Alliance mm-hmm. and through everything that I've done, you know, I'm going to be able to put together a general guide on the different organizations that you have to talk to in order to be able to be compliant. And because that's one of the big hurdles with this for people that want to do that. And she said she has tons of people that would be willing That's and awesome. very excited to jump in well, on this. And I, I, I think there's going to be such a demand because if you can put something like that, you're not going to be able to do it hundred percent like this is right. the manual. We know that they're going to have to have maybe a researcher or analyst to, to go through the process and it'll get better and better every time a processing mm-hmm. plan is opened. But what you've started here is going to create a domino effect and it's going to be for the positive. And every one of these people probably going to bring in the Oglala all the commons everybody you've worked with now during they're going to get the exposure they've been probably trying to get in so many different ways and you know i'm going to try to do that as well and so I th- it's it's vital i mean this is the rest of my life this is what i'm doing you know this is my purpose and everything so we're going to make this texas beef initiative work in a way that i don't think a lot of people understand so this is going to be fun doing a continual dialogue um we've almost run two hours which <laughs> you and i could talk three or four hours <laughs> Yep. <laughs> but people got to work, people got to go to sleep. So this is going to run probably, I don't know. We'll try to get this live, you know, Wednesday, hopefully people mm-hmm. will be hearing this on Wednesday. And so, um, and, and we'll, maybe we can do this next Sunday night again. Yeah. Well, I, I'd look forward to it. Like I said, I think that what you're doing is really important Good. and I think that it's, kind of going to work in tandem, you know, because there's, it, it takes people of all different kinds. It does. And, and, and that's really the only way we can do that. This kind of, just a quick rant, this kind of, we need to be one collective, you know, everybody needs to kind of be the same mentality that has, you know, started permeating lots of things, I think is completely wrong and un, un, unbased. It, you know, we need to, ex, uh, you know, be excited about people's 
different talents and different passions. And that's the only way that we can make, that's what makes those small communities run. There, it really is. And we've lost that in so many ways. This collectivism that basically has destroyed the self and the instincts of the individual and the and the talents of the individual that want to be, be team players, that want to be good for their community, that want to basically, you know, have a sense of empowerment that actually helps other people have a sense of empowerment. Man, that's what this is all about. Right. Yep. Yeah. So now I'm I'm looking forward to it. Cool. Yeah. Well, me too. I'm excited. I'm, I'm so happy that, you know, I've come back to home and that this opportunity is just, it just, it just happened and it's taken us to here. So, um, so Justin, we're going to sign off tonight. Everybody, thank you so much for, um, for probably listening for the first time. Uh, this is going to be very exciting moving forward. This, this is going to spread like wildfire and, uh, you know, we're going to be here for you. We're going to give you a lot of information. So you know how to get a hold of me. It's uh, Modern T Man on Twitter at Modern T Man. My substack is initiative.substack.com. And if you want to email me, you can email me at TXSlim at mtminitiative.com. And uh, Justin, it's going to be your choice. Do you want to provide your information as far as your your business, your organization yet? Or do you want to wait until you're up and running? It's up to uh, you. I, I don't mind throwing my farm out there. Okay. Uh, so my farm is called Tier Balloon Farm. And so you can find uh, Tier Balloon Farm on Facebook as well as Instagram. And then if you want to email me, it's just a uh, Tierbloon at gmail.com. And spell that out for us. So that's T-I-R-B-L-U-E-N. Does that have a uh, special uh, meaning to it? it? It does. So that's actually Welsh and it's, it's Featherland. Okay. Because that's, that's what I started with. And, and uh, you know, back in the old world, they used to name their farms because their farms were living entities. They weren't just pieces of property. And so I wanted to uh, capture as much of that as I could. And, and so my wife helped me come up with that name. So that's awesome, man. I tell you what, we got so much history to unfold here. <laughs> we're we're gonna be sitting here next year. Okay, what is this? November fourteenth, uh, twenty twenty-one. <laughs> no, November fourteenth, twenty twenty-two. We're just gonna be talking a lot of history still. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. But, all right, Justin. Well, we're gonna sign off for now. Uh, thank you guys, and we will see you next week. Bye. All right, sounds good. Thanks, Justin. 